Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Hefner, and I'm not internationally known, but I've been known to rock the microphone. And today, I am joined by someone who is not only internationally known, but also known to rock the microphone, our CEO and President, Elizabeth Pierce. That was quite an introduction. It was good, right? Yeah. Well yeah. done. Thanks. Um, I'm so nervous right now. Why? Should I be? This feels like a performance review. Don't you? <laughs> there are many things that you and I could discuss over the last 15 years of our relationship. It's not been that long. It just it just feels that way. <laughs> you saying 15 years makes me How know that. How long have you been at the museum, though? I've been at the museum for 12 years. Okay, so but almost I've been 15 years. Almost 15 years, but I've been working with in me marketing directly for, 10, for for a decade. Yeah, yeah, and so. It's, is our relationship a bratty fourth grader right now? Um, yeah, that's kind of how you feel sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> to that point, people people get cranky because I can say and get away with things to you that other people can't. Not that I get kind of a, a free pass to do whatever I want, but I also know what you like and what you'll tolerate in a way that other people don't. And so sometimes I'll have an idea and people are like, okay. Is this a smart use of resources and time? And is this like really a priority for us? And I'll happen to mention it to you and you'll say, yes, love it. Brilliant. All the shenanigans yeah. within reason. Shenanigans is is the word in the podcast title that makes me chuckle because you are always up to shenanigans in some form or another. If you shenan once, you're bound to shenanigan. Yes. You've said that to me more than on one occasion. For the most part, your shenanigans work out well. <laughs> For the most part. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you put your phone on silent. No, you turned your phone off completely because you said the only person you need to talk to is in this room right now. Yes. You're going out of town on vacation once and you texted me and said, I'm heading out in a little bit, but I'm available for you if you need anything. And I said, great. And five minutes later, I called you and you did not answer. <laughs> Sight. Nor did you return the call. So I was like, well, that's great. That's a great sentiment. It just didn't work out. I'm sure there was some reason that I couldn't pick up the phone immediately when you called me. But you know I'm always available to talk to you. I know, for the most part. Yes. So I always joke that I either know someone's title, and this this holds true for a lot of people throughout the museum. You know someone's title, but you don't know what they do. You know what they do, but you have no idea what their title is. Are you unclear about president and CEO? I think some people might be. Okay. I would like to hear how you describe your role here. Um, I was just thinking about this, actually, because there was a conversation. A crisis uh, of an identity crisis? It was more about, like, you know, how many plates are spinning and who's, who's, like, who's like the master plate spinner. And in some ways, I think that's that's the role of the president and CEO is, like, keeping an eye on all the spinning plates, figuring out where one's about to fall off. Or, uh, oh, oh yeah, we can add another one here without, you know, dismantling the entire demonstration. So so when you see that plate or when you recognize that plate that's about to fall off, do you feel it's your job to grab that plate and keep it spinning or to nudge the person spinning the plate that their plate's about to fall? It's a combination of the two. It just I think it depends on on what the pattern on the plate is. What a, what a <laughs> diplomatic answer from a CEO Who's worked in the field of PR? There we are. See? Yeah. I, I try to know my way around some things here and there. I don't know my way around um, 
certain things in the organization, but I do know my way around a lot of things. What are those things? What are those things? What are you the don't things know I don't know around? my yeah. my way around? Let's say I am dangerous around the chart of accounts, and um, you know the IT infrastructure. Yeah, those are things that 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 requires a level of detail that my brain cannot process. So other people are brilliant at those things, and I just work with those other people. There's a lot of things I don't know in general, and some things. I have no interest in trying to learn because I know someone else knows it and they've got it. So rather than understanding what they do, I just need to trust that they can do what they do. IT, chart of accounts, do you feel like you want to learn those things so you could be more helpful, more productive in those conversations? Or are you just like, tell me what's important, tell me what I need to worry about, and then we'll move on? That is not a good use of my energy to try and deeply understand either of those things. The good use of my energy is to ask enough qualified questions so I know that those are being put to the service of the organization the right way. You're a really great interrogator, though, because... (laughs) um, Interrogator? That sounds hostile. Well, because you don't let people off the hook. You will ask a question. You're famous, I feel, for saying, okay, let me ask this in a different way. When people just aren't grasping where you need them to be in that answer, where you need them to get to, or I've been victim of this before where you say, eh, wrong answer, <laughs> which is usually, hey, Cody, what's going on with this? I don't know. That's someone else is taking care of that or that's not for me to worry about. And eh, wrong answer to which I know, you know, I'm going to ask that question. I'm going to figure that out. So I can get back to you. There we go. I, I am married to a guy who likes to ask a lot of questions. So I think the the Pierce family. Um, Just an inquisitive bunch. Yes. Has rubbed off on me in a variety of ways. So and I like the the five whys. Right. So like, let's get to the heart of what the thing is. And people are busy and they're kind of trying to do their thing and, and they don't want to be bothered by having to answer too many questions. And and they'll give you a deflective answer or an answer that's incomplete. And that that is my job as the president and CEO is to to investigate the question enough to get to the heart of what either is the opportunity or the obstacle that needs to be moved or really think about, like, let's understand deeply what we're trying to get accomplished. In that role as the leader of the organization, and if you think of it kind of as a coach, do you find yourself, and I can imagine the answer, but I'm going to try to push you on it, as that coach that's a motivator or that's a teacher that you are are teaching or you kind of the tough love, like that you're hammering people to get them like, are you using the Would you like to answer the question for me? For job security purposes, (laughs) I am not permitted to do that. I think that I am, well, we, you know this about me, I'm impatient about getting things done. So I probably, um, hopefully I'm a mix of all of those different characteristics that you described. But, you know, for me, working at Museum Center, it's clear the mission and the vision that we have and what we've been trying to get accomplished. And I'm always driving towards how do we do what we want to do for the community? How do we get Union Terminal's future secured? And how do we restore the building? And then how do we utilize the restoration moment to put really fabulous new content into the organization? How do we use that content to have the most profound impact we can possibly have on the students and the 
visitors to this community. And, you know, I never want this organization to be taken for granted um, because we're a big building that everybody likes to bring their family to once or twice a year. I want people to have a much deeper relationship with us and understand the role that museums can play, that this museum in particular plays in kindergarten readiness, in workforce development, in a culture of curiosity that will help drive people to be the better versions of themselves in all ways, to, to be an organization that has the treasures of our community that share with us and unlock what's happened in the past so we can continue to learn from it. So I am relentless in my pursuit of that. If anyone was paying attention, you just nailed the talking points for the organization, the mission, uh, the strategic priorities of the organization in that brief soundbite. Because you're more of a person, you cook without the recipe. You are right. You (laughs) like, yes, we do. As an organization, we do have a strategic plan that we do follow. But stuff happens in the world that necessitates us to be a little bit different from time to time to serve the community best. Sometimes the community needs us to do this or to to behave in this way. Sometimes we need to address these things. In I your, am an opportunist in that regard, absolutely. Well, you are, and that it's if you're cooking for certain individuals, you may change a recipe in a certain way. If you if you prefer sports analogies, which I do, uh, I don't think Michael Jordan was thinking, okay, here's how you shoot a basketball. I need to make sure my my arm does this and my feet are placed this way. He knew what had to happen to score points to win the game. And do you feel? I'm not nearly as competitive as Michael Jordan is, but are you I, sure? Uh, yeah, be <laughs> fair, but uh, you know, I'm going to align myself with the Steve Kerr of the world, right? Like it's it's an intellectual pursuit, and you can achieve what you want to get done, and you can be a little competitive in the process, but but you know, I'm not I'm not the same way as Jordan. You're Olympics Jordan. You want to play with the oh, other like super. Okay. You want to play with the other superstars. You and you want to, you know, high tide rises all. Yes. Shapes, yes. A hundred percent. So. To that point, you you have colleagues at museums locally, but around the country, uh, and in other similar institutions, the zoo, um, the aquarium, places like that. Mm-hmm. How do you feel your relationship and your role is with those organizations? That and what role do you feel like you need to play in that ecosystem? I love having great partnerships because I think that's where the really the magic can come forward. And if you are open or let me say it differently, I try to be open to developing relationships that really allow for those creative opportunistic moments to come forward. And, you know, museum people are fun people to to be with. Um, Everybody is curious in some form or another. People are generally interested in sharing experiences so you can learn from them. So, and to have worked as I have done in a number of different types of museums, um, I think that also speaks to my level of interest across a broad range and then relationship building that can happen across all of those things. So I'm super excited about the fact that we are a Smithsonian affiliate and that we're able to kind of connect with all of the other Smithsonian affiliates across the country and then the access that that gives us to subject matter experts at the Smithsonian because that opens up doors. But then you're also sharing amongst all these other organizations that are of different sizes and different locations. Uh, I'm thrilled with the Association of Science Museum Directors Group because they are just 
cover a huge range of different types of museums, but everybody has a level of interest in a great visitor experience, a great um, collections care um, opportunity, and then working with subject matter experts. And, you know, we're really looking forward to hosting the Association of um, State and Local History here in Cincinnati in 2025. So it's a whole nother group of people to play with um, around content and museum experience. Do you ever feel like you have split personalities working here? On the one front, we cover a lot of different topic areas. But on the other hand, being Cincinnati Museum Center within Union Terminal, so that you are um, you're kind of the keeper of the, of the building, but also of the organization. So how do you know where to focus your time, your energy, your, your thoughts at any moment with you know, thinking about the building, the history and the legacy and the maintenance and care of it, um, the future, the direction, the the day to day of the museum, thinking about how we're addressing science and how we're addressing history, how we're addressing early childhood education, on and on and on. Yeah, it's a lot in all sorts of different directions. So the one thing I thought was really fascinating when I came on and started to work here as vice president of marketing and then... Which was when? When did you start with I the organization? I started October 1st, 2007 as the vice president of marketing. Several years before that, though, they were my client when I was at Dan Pinger Public Relations. You got to get a Pinger shout out. Yeah, always. The Pinger Alumni Network is it, long and deep. Oh my gosh. It, it really is. It's like a bingo card sometimes. <laughs> I like that. That is true. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, first and foremost, I grew up in a house of curious people. And my father was a zoology major in undergrad. He was a double major. He was a zoology and a history major. And um, if he hadn't gone to medical school, um, he really had given serious consideration into pursuing a history a PhD and, and, you know, becoming a history teacher or a history professor. And in fact, his history professors at OU were upset with him that he abandoned the history side of the equation to go down the science side. So I just have always been surrounded by this intersection of science and history and just the way the world works. And, and his favorite thing to talk about was the magic of the slime of life and how how fascinating it was. And so, you know, this is like, the background of my childhood is surrounded by history books and the slime of life simultaneously interchanged. Now we're seeing where it comes from. For oh, it's you. 100% where it comes from. Because that is, that's how you speak. That's how you speak of <laughs> what we do as an organization. Yeah. It is always I felt this... very, uh, I felt very well equipped to take on the roles in this organization. And because then I also worked in the Children's Museum field at a very important time in the early 90s when there was a lot of brain research coming forward. So I have been exposed to a lot of these different topics and fields uh, in a way that my brain wants to, to create that intersection and that energy between them. So on any given day around here, we are doing a lot of really interesting and cool things. And at the heart of that, it's about creating more curious people. And that's what I love most. Where does this sense of urgency come from? Because you... Mm, that's a good... <laughs> well, I... You'll have to ask my mother that question because it's a lifelong uh, affliction. You mentioned you're always the spinning plates and can we add more plates? So there's this, like everything needs to be, um, there needs to be this speed to it. Done tomorrow. Done yesterday. Everything needs to be done tomorrow. Um, there's the speed to it, which 
I have no doubt, uh, was very beneficial from a PR perspective because you're always on deadline. Something happens in the world that you need to react to or capitalize on, um, that you need to find information quickly. So I feel like there's always a ticking clock in such a, a sense that it follows me everywhere, all day. But you bring that here and you bring that to your role as CEO. But where does that come from? I mean, I've been a type A child my whole life. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to answer that question. It could be because, you know, my father was a surgeon and my mother was an emergency room nurse. So there, you know, there was not a lack of decision making capability in the household in which I grew up. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, you make a decision and you move forward and then you keep it going and then you solve the next problem that presents itself. And now at the same time, I like to cook slowly and caramelize onions when I need meditation and I like to go for a walk in the woods with my dog and and there's a moment of zen too it's not I'm not like on fire all the time is that is that a new development or is that something have you always had this high speed aspect but then you need these these moments of zen to recharge or is that something that you've developed later uh you know I think I probably came to to calming down a little bit later but um probably because I figured that you can't do everything all the time. For anyone who's not familiar with you, this used to be my joke, and I don't know if you've ever heard it, um, it's, but I'm saying it now with Tread Mitch. Tread lightly. Yeah, I know. Uh, and we can see if if Mitch cuts this from the podcast, if it'll also cut it from your memory. But we would be in a group, and someone would say, where's Elizabeth? And I said, she's on her way. We love Elizabeth. She's a golden retriever, but she sees a lot of squirrels. It's Fair so, enough. Yeah, I've heard that before. But you you always end up where you need to be. Yeah. So there's that. I, I you know, metaphorically and uh, literally, I am 20 minutes early or 10 minutes late. <laughs> I cannot seem to hit the on time button. And um, I, yeah, I, I don't I don't know why my sense of timing is off on that because I'm in a hurry to get a lot of things done. Does it ever wear on you being in a hurry all the time? Yeah. I mean, you got to you got to recharge at okay. some point. So, yeah, I think I figured out how to take a deep breath and figure I, out the next step to do things more efficiently than than frantically. As someone who's type A and a leader of people who are all types, how do you balance your constant speed and energy and like let's go, let's let's get things done with people who are more methodical who need to kind of map things out because we talked about that's a key part of like going through the leadership transition process I think if there's anything I've learned over the last eight years as CEO is understanding what energy people are giving back to you so then you can put that to work in service of the goal because if you're not aligned and you're not on the same page you're not going to be able to move the ball forward the way you want, and you're not going to be able to take advantage of people's expertise. And so I and I am regularly um, humbled by the idea that there are so many things that are outside of any of our control. So we have to kind of, you know, take that under consideration as you're thinking about getting things done. Backing up for a second, walk us through the path that Elizabeth Pierce took to becoming CEO of Cincinnati Museum Center. Where, where did you start? How did you arrive in the CEO's office and what was the biggest transition, the the biggest um, growing pain in that transition? So Miami of Ohio, undergrad with history degree in geography, uh, studied in Luxembourg and um, did the, you know, the Lux program 
And that's where I really decided I want to work in museums. I traveled to so many different museums throughout that European experience and um, managed to finagle my way into an internship in London for the summer between my junior and senior year of college, where I interned at the Florence Nightingale Museum. Oh, wow. And uh, got a chance to see a small museum up close and personal with a very specific story and, you know, objects that had come back from the Crimea and, and her, um, the role that she played in kind of professionalizing uh, healthcare and nursing. And um, when I got back to Oxford senior year, and had the experience of the fall where all the accounting and finance people are walking in with their job offers and they're all ready to go to Chicago and start their management training program. And I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to figure out a job in museums? So I started applying for museum jobs, but I also knew I was going to need to probably go to graduate school as a part of that. So I applied to graduate school and um, chose that path, went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., where they have probably one of the oldest programs for museum administration. It was a way to help the subject matter experts at the Smithsonian actually have um, administration experience, exhibit development experience, registrarial experience, different skill sets along those ways. So that's what I did. I moved to D.C., took that job on, worked at... um, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in the photo archives department as a volunteer while I was there, worked at the National Endowment for the Arts while I was there, and um, and really started to gain skill set around understanding what's the business side of the museum field look like, and then ultimately um, moved to Chicago and started to work for the Chicago Children's Museum on the fundraising front. And that was really fabulous because it was like again another stretch of a skill set in the business side of the equation and got to see how the city worked got to see how all these different partnerships came together and when my husband and I moved to Cincinnati I wanted a little bit of a different break I wanted to get kind of out of the nonprofit sector and see what was available in the for-profit world with you know air quotes thinking like it was going to be a totally different ball game And what I came to realize is that business is business and people are people. And the frustrations that you have in one sector are not any different than the frustrations you may have in another sector because people are people and that's how it goes. So when we moved to Cincinnati, I took a job with Dan Pinger Public Relations and did um, communications strategy PR. I thought that was a reasonable transition from fundraising to doing PR work because you were still telling a story and engaging people in what you wanted them to do for you. And the museum became one of my clients in the early 2000s. And that was to help kind of plow the groundwork for the original tax levy to support Union Terminal. And I had two kids in the middle of that process and working on uh, an hourly basis for an agency was less conducive to my home life than, um, than I wanted it to be. So I ultimately did freelance work and became a volunteer for the museum at the same time. And then at a certain point, Doug McDonald called and said, okay, it's time for you to come back to the museum field full time. And this is what you need to be doing. And, and because Doug and I had known each other for a long time, that felt very comfortable and, and very natural to do. And I knew what the plan was in terms of trying to convince the community that Union Terminal needed to be saved and how we were going to do that. So I came and joined senior leadership in um, October of 2007. And we um, 
did one special exhibit after another, and we pursued the restoration of Union Terminal throughout that process. And ultimately, when Doug retired, I knew enough about kind of the strategic plan and where we were headed that the board um, came and asked if I would consider taking on the CEO role. So it was a circuitous path, but it got to the right place. When you were asked to take on the CEO role, did you have any hesitation or were you 100% in? No, I had trepidation in the sense of like, it's an enormous organization and a big, big project that we were about to undertake. And Because when when was this? So this was um, early 2015. Okay. And um, we just passed the, the Save Our Icons sales tax to fix Union Terminal. And... Um, so it yeah it felt it felt really big and there were some moments where I'm like okay am I really qualified to do this and I think you know in so many ways I was and am qualified to do it from a communications and a fundraising standpoint and I knew the collections very deeply because I'd been involved in that thank god we have the CFO that we have because she makes so many things possible for us and that is again not my area of expertise so at least I you know with a good partner um, felt much more confidence and ability to do what we needed to do. And um, and so, so far it's worked out pretty well. I think so. <laughs> I, I'm on record as, as saying that. Uh, when you made that transition, what was the biggest learning curve for you? So one of the things that was really apparent to me very quickly is the different types of energy it takes to do these jobs. So, you know, when I was vice president of communications and staffing Doug and staffing the board members, it was um, a lot of energy spent on writing and then connecting with media and running around the building and taking them different places. And like physically it was um, busy and we were active, but it was also a lot of, of sitting in front of the computer doing a lot of work. I probably worked 60 to 70 hours a week sometimes to be able to do that. When I became CEO, I realized it's a totally different type of energy. Um, it's much more engaging with people, even than I thought I had done previously as vice president of communications. And um, with events and other activities that you have to do. And I thought, I feel like I'm working less hours, but I'm even more exhausted than I was um, before. So it's it's a different shift in the way energy flows and what's required in different situations. And I had a much better understanding of that after having done both sides of that equation. So what would you consider your tenure and involvement with the with the museum? Because you you joined formally in 2007, but walk it backwards from there. And when would you say your working relationship with the museum started? That started in 2002. Okay. And um, then I was a volunteer on the Children's Museum Advisory Board. And then as a result of that was on the board of trustees for a period of time. So I was in this volunteer leadership space from 2003 to 2007. In your 20 plus years then with the organization, what are some of your proudest moments? Oh my gosh, there are so many. That's like just because this organization is incredible. A couple of the key moments that are just super highlights among so many others are um, passing the Union Terminal sales tax. Right, that's that's fundamentally what I came here to do many years ago, and to do it with such a resounding percentage of the vote 
was just like a huge exclamation point on the way the community feels about Union Terminal and all the different stories that have come forward about people's relationships with the building. So getting that done was unbelievable. And then, you know, getting the restoration done in such a spectacular way where this building is recognized internationally for its work um, in restoration is just unbelievable. Now, I had significantly less hands-on to do with that um, than I did on the levy campaign because I had to turn all of that over to architects and, and engineers and other things. But um, but yeah, restoring this building for the future of our community is a huge highlight of that. The other thing that goes more to the content and the programmatic stuff of what we did is to be recognized by the Institute of Museum and Library Services as a National Medal of Museum Service. And that happened in 2009. And that was a huge testament to so many people's work that had been happening over time. So think about the fact that the museums were independent organizations until they came together in this building and actually merged together as a corporate structure in 1995, and the Children's Museum joined in 1998. So we're still a relatively young organization if you start from the moment that the merger took place in 1995. And I think to have that recognized by the Institute of Museum and Library Services was such a testament to the things that Doug and John Fleming and Dan Hurley and Scott Gamfer and... um, Tanya Matthews, um, Sandy Shipley, gosh, so many other names that I can't come up with right now. You know, all these things that people had done over many, many years really got celebrated in that 2009 moment as well. So going from thinking of the sales tax levy, which was 2014, Mm -hmm. past 63% yes, uh, which is almost two to one. Yeah. Which is pretty fantastic. Hooray, great, good news, and then... A year and a half later, now you have to put this entire building through construction for two and a half years. Um, that gets us to 2018, November 2018, reopening after $228 million restoration. We have a great 2019. March 2020 happens, <laughs> which was less appealing. Did you feel like you were playing a video game and it was every time you beat a boss, oh, there's a bigger boss? Like there was every time you thought you got to celebrate someone else came out my wife always says there's always a bigger bully whenever oh gosh whenever someone is bullying she always says there's always a bigger bully did you feel like bigger bullies just kept coming out in essentially a nine-year span what i have appreciated about this organization at the pace of what we do is that it just is ongoing always. So when I started in 2007, we had the Bodies exhibition in 2008. We had the Freedom Sisters exhibition um, two months later. Then we had the 75th anniversary of Union Terminal. Like from the moment I got here, it was one thing, one opportunity after another, racing, racing, racing to get. And some of them were, were great opportunities and some of them were crises along the way that had to be fixed. So yeah, the nature of the beast here is that there's always something else that is going to come up that we want to take advantage of or that we want to um, maximize or or that's, you know, an opportunity that's coming our way. So to fix the building in 2018, which was no small undertaking, as you said, to have a great year in 2019 and then just to have the, you know, our knees cut off in March of 2020, took the wind out of our sails in a deep breath, no doubt about it. Um, 
you know, the next thing that I will say I'm super proud of is the fact that our organization was poised to work through change because we had done this other transformation. And so, you know, while we were getting our sea legs and coming back from all the disruption of construction and everything else, um, to have COVID shut us down wasn't as devastating for us as I think it might have been for other people because we had the ability to take a deep breath and be like, okay, we've gone through tough stuff before. How are we going to think about problem solving here? So we had that muscle already developed. Um, I'm not happy that we had to use it again, but I think it, it helped us get through, you know, five months of being completely shuttered, a year of the children's museum being shuttered, um, and then kind of building our way back to where we are. And in the midst of all of that, we were able to track down every possible resource that was out there for us. And we were able to take advantage of the time to really do much more on the re-imagining um, of the exhibition front and get things installed. So we found the silver linings in a lot of those moments. And um, now we're at a place where feel like we are a completely different organization than people would remember. And they need to come back and see us and, and discover all the new things that are here. Those are some of your proudest moments with the organization. How about some of your most fun you want me to tell the story of how I caught the building on no, fire. No, that, that was, I had a separate question teed up for that because that question is, what's something that was really fun but you would never do again? Like there's there's always these moments, as a kid you do something you're like, whoa, that was cool. I was so close to death the entire time. So what? Okay, so the super fun things that we've done here. Um, I loved having the Princess Diana exhibition come in because the fashion was amazing. But what made it super fun for me was the fact that we were able to build this whole companion gallery called Daughters of the Queen City. We showed off all these stories about women in the Cincinnati area over the last, I don't know, 150 plus years. We had wedding gowns from numerous different eras, and then we were able to to pair with it an explanation of all this incredible work women in the community had done. And so that was like spectacular to show that off and to work with the team at Landor to come up with some really cool creative expressions around that. And it then, was it was really beautiful. Yeah. Daughters of the Queen City looked great. That was, was the first exhibit I worked on oh, very good. top to bottom. Nice. It, we went from a dinosaur exhibit to a Diana exhibit. And I was like, Great. This is how does this work? Right in my wheelhouse, uh, and I quickly had to become an expert on Diana's wedding dress and these historic wedding dresses, yeah. among other things. But you love history, so it worked out really I well did. for it you. Was, it was fun. I loved I loved working on that exhibition um, because we had great community partners involved, and it was beautiful to be a part of that. And we had a great party that went along with it. One of the really fun board meetings we had was about whether we were going to buy some dinosaurs or not. And it's not every day that you get to walk into a meeting and say, hey, I'd like to buy a dinosaur or two. And the Nicholas Cage has those meetings all the time. <laughs> the entire board was 100% behind it. And um, the timing of it was really spectacular because there were other museums who were in the mix or the hunt for these specimens that had been presented to us. And, uh, and, and we got them in the nick of time. And they are among the 
you can't see them most other places in the world. You have to come to Cincinnati to see them. So that was also a really fun meeting to be able to to talk through um, the dinosaur purchase. Says the person who's not that competitive. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> I just love that we have these things that, that um, really bring scientists and um, educators as well as the public in. And then to be able to put the dinosaurs in that space, I mean, that was really spectacular to rethink like where we were going to put different content in the building. It was incredibly creative after we got through the hyperventilation moment of like, oh my gosh, we have to take everything out of the building and then we have to put it all back in. And so when we, once we got to the fun part of figuring out where to put it all in, to be able to showcase the dinosaurs in that spectacular entry ramp of the Natural History Museum, it's just like the architecture just is so perfect for that presentation. And so, you know, these are the fun parts of my job. Do you have a favorite exhibit? I have favorite many. Permanent. I have many favorite exhibits. <laughs> Sure you do. I do. I mean, I am gaga for the Ordovician Fossil Gallery, Ancient Worlds Hiding in Plain Sight that we just opened. I mean, those specimens are stunningly beautiful, scientifically important, and uniquely Cincinnati. You know, and I couldn't have told you what Ordovician meant before I started to work with this organization. But to appreciate the fossils of the Cincinnati region and that we can show off such spectacular specimens just gives me goosebumps. The presentation is beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful exhibit. Right. It's gorgeous. Um, Made in Cincinnati is my other favorite exhibition. It is such a cool compilation of different Cincinnati stories. And there are so many more that we can tell and we'll add to it over time. Um, but be able to like show off what a machine tool is and why it works the way it is and the impact that it's had on this community. And, you know, all roads or rivers lead through this community and it gives rise to so many other things. There are businesses that grow out of the fact that they everything kind of flows down the Ohio River through this region and then beyond. So I love the stories that go along with with these different exhibitions. And then, you know, the interactives that we're able to put on display, like the mural maker and you are here, the Quizinati and you are here. I love watching people do it because it just captivates them in so many ways. How are you at that? Do you ace it? Um, do you know it, know it all no, by now? No, I do not. Well, I probably do know it all by now, but but I don't play it that often. I'm I'm more about the World War II pivot game in Made in Cincinnati. Do you ace that one? I do ace that okay. one now. Yeah, 100%. That one is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I love the transportation gallery and the, and the Cincinnati in motion. I mean, it's just all of it. All of it works so beautifully together. Do you think museums' roles are to... A lot of people think museums, that's where you're going to go. It's where you're going to find old stuff, right? I have running jokes with people in town who are always asking me, how's your dusty old stuff? And I'm... <laughs> do you, but they do just you, try to provoke the bear. Do you think, well, what role does that does that play in a museum, having the old stuff? Because now technology is, is heavily intertwined in so much stuff that technology can be wonderful to illustrate concepts and, and help with that learning, that education in a way that a dinosaur can't. But what do you think the importance is of all that dusty stuff that people like to ask you about? I think it's the touchstone to all of it. Like, right, when you and I go into the history library and we look at the documents that Abraham Lincoln signed and wrote in his own hand, like, that gives us goosebumps, right? Like, you, I mean, you and I kind of geek out about that together. You're seeing something that he actually wrote. Right. Like, he, 
even today, a handwritten note. It, well, let's not get into the debate about the fact that nobody can read cursive anymore. But, <laughs> but you know, just like the real thing, the real thing matters, right? When we had Destination Moon and we brought in the Apollo 11 capsule. And the cover of Night. It was wild. And I mean, I'm kind of speechless, right? Like, And you see where it's charred from how it went through the atmosphere to get back to the Earth. That is a crazy moment to stand there and be like, I am in the presence of this thing, right? So I think technology enables our ability to understand so many things at a deeper level, but it's not, it, it can't be the replacement. It needs to be the add-on to the I'm standing in front of the real thing. The The number of people that came here in droves to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, Another moment of like Cincinnati Museum Center bringing the world to this community. And that's one thing we haven't talked about, but I think we do in spades, like the most incredible job of bringing the world to this community. In the time that you and I have worked here, we have seen the Vikings, Pompeii, Cleopatra. We've been to Egypt two or three times. Egypt two or three times. From an exhibition standpoint. Mummies from all around the world. Mummies from all around specifically. the world. Specifically. Multiple Legos. Incredible, um, incredible traveling exhibitions. Guitars. The, oh my God, the guitars are super fun too. And I'm not even, I like, I, I don't know how to play the guitar, but I can admire the artwork <laughs> that goes into all of it as well. So um, having the artifact is a powerful, incredibly powerful moment. And then you can put all these other things kind of around it. Okay, let's talk about the 75th anniversary of Union Terminal. I mean, that's a huge moment for the organization. I imagine you had some spectacular celebration. The what 70- did that look like? Yeah, the 75th anniversary of Union Terminal was the beginning of my love of an anniversary celebration because you could just milk it for months and months and months. <laughs> and so we kicked off the 75th anniversary of Union Terminal with a fabulous cake and the opening of the time capsule. And, um, and then later that year, we decided we would have a fireworks display over the top of Union Terminal. We were going to take these fabulous photographs and print them as posters and be able to sell them everywhere. And all of this was going to lead up into the 75th anniversary gala that we held in October of 2008. So it was a really lovely um, cadence of celebrations all the way through. And um, we were very excited to have the fireworks display until the fireworks that rained down over Union Terminal caught a bush on fire in front of the building. <laughs> and my photograph, my like spectacular poster photograph, was disrupted by the fire trucks arriving at the front of the building to extinguish the burning bush in front of Union Terminal. What so, did that burning bush tell you? <laughs> it was prophetic in all sorts of ways. And uh, thankfully, we were able to um, replace that landscaping when we did the restoration of the building in 2016. Uh, we don't we don't have large bushes in front of the building anymore. And I may or may not be directly responsible for that. <laughs> Thank you, maybe, for that. Technically, now, you probably could greenlight another fireworks show but what is something that you flex your executive muscle on where you take advantage of your role 
I often will host people for lunch in the Union Terminal President's office. And um, that's a nice way to have a moment of, of quiet and uh, show off a great space that lots of other people don't get to use. Um, and, you know, I might slip in the back door of the Omnimax when I'm uh, curious about a film and maybe just get a glimpse of it here or there. And so, and I may or may not have pressured Dave Dzinski into getting the right information about the Taylor Swift Omnimax. <laughs> so, Which was the right decision. That was pretty special. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. What's your favorite Taylor Swift song? Oh, my gosh. Shake It Off is one. There's so many. There's so many good ones. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I think you should just stand with with shake it off. No, it's uh, that's a go-to for me because you just need a little energy and you need to be like, you know, bad vibes can go somewhere else. So, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you have a singular best day, a single best day in your time with the museum? No, because they're all, I mean, not all of them are great, but like the vast majority of them are fabulous. And on any given day, I get to touch so many different topics that my brain is ignited in a really fabulous and meaningful way. So, you know, that for me is a really good day is the fact that we can go from understanding like, you know, a community partnership to planning a special exhibition to figuring out a really important donor conversation to walking through the rotunda and and hearing the noise of families who are having a great time. So that's a really good day. That enthusiasm for every day, that excitement for it, do you ever feel as a CEO that you can't have that childlike enthusiasm, like you have to be more buttoned up? Do you ever get critical of yourself in that way? No. I think the, the benefit of our content is that we get to play with all of that energy and enthusiasm. You know, if, if we weren't this intersection of science and history and early childhood, you know, maybe that would feel um, silly to be as childlike and as enthusiastic as we are sometimes um, if we were working with one specific piece of content or another. But because we are this place that the entire community gets to come to across a, a range of things and because we want to cultivate curiosity all the way through. I want to be whimsical. I want to throw humor into the conversation and give people a sense of the joy that we we want them to have when when they're here. And, you know, I mean, I, I'd probably tone it down if I have to go to the county commissioners or something. I'm not as joyful as I am in other places. But um, but yeah, I think that's the whole point. It's like we want people to to be excited about coming here. But that's just who you are. That's like baseline experience of just constant enthusiasm, excitement. I was the captain of the cheerleading squad. I was, right? was going to bring it up, <laughs> but you. <laughs> when I wasn't too busy nerding out over student council or national honor society, so you know it's a it's a mix Were you of president all of, that. of student of course, council. No, I was president of national honor society. I was vice president of student council. How magnanimous of you! I, I'm still a little competitive about losing that vote. <laughs> Was it? But it worked out okay. Was it early America's voting? So did the the first place vote getter get president and second place got yes, vice president? Yes, oh wow! Yes, yes, yeah. Okay, but you know. But were you puppeteering behind the scenes? No, I didn't. I hadn't figured that out yet at that point in time. <laughs> okay, so you admit that that is a skill. How can you be in PR and not be puppeteering in some form or another? You're not puppeteering. You are prioritizing information and you're packaging that 
in the most appropriate way. I have the, the just most... I'm I'm cavelling with pride right now for the fact that that's the way you've packaged it. So you clearly have learned with me along the way. I got very irritated once because someone said, "Well, Cody, can't you just spin that and like make it interesting?" And I said, "No, because it's not interesting." <laughs> And the only way I couldn't make it interesting would be by lying about it. And it was it was not a museum-specific topic. It was ancillary to that. But I'm like, we, we don't you, spin right, information. Right. No, you Everything is factual. You have to present the information as it is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you've done my job. Yeah. Which I'm reminded of. But it's nice because now I get to remind you how to do it every now and then. Because you've been out of this for so long that I have to kind of refresh you sometimes. Yes, indeed. But if you could trade roles with anyone in the museum for a day, who would you trade roles with? I'm thinking about some of the people that you've talked to already. Like, I loved the conversation you had with Erica Schultz about all the things that she does. I'm so not equipped or qualified to use any of that machinery or equipment, but I think it would be hysterical and great fun to do it. Why do you just want to light things on fire? (laughs) (laughs) I... I didn't say I wanted to light things on fire. I was thinking about her drill and her her, uh, saw and all of those things that she uses. Okay, I I immediately went to welding. Yes, I do really very much want to try the wine welding on Wednesdays, but (laughs) the lawyers are telling me I can't do that. Um, You know, it's been a long time since I've been deep in research mode in... um, primary source material and that is also fascinating to me and really exciting so like going through and helping the curators process new collections like that that would be a lot of fun for the day is to like really kind of get in and look at all the stuff in the collections and and unpack the boxes of things that are coming in and you know I don't know if they want me to do that or not well sometimes I go to the to the acquisitions meetings with the curators just to hang out yeah I just want to hear about what the new stuff is and I just like to be around the group because some of them are, are very, uh, very excited that I'm there because they're like, Cody, we never see you. Others are, are kind of like begrudgingly giving me a seat at the table. Kind of like, oh, wow, I thought you forgot the address to the Geyer Center. Like, no. hey, You're paying attention to all of that because you and I are looking at those lists and figuring out what the next stories are that we want to tell about the next thing that's coming into the collection. So well, it's 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 good to have a relationship where you can kind of kind of rib people. It keeps everyone grounded yeah. in a way. I am fascinated when we walk through the DNA lab and the bird prep area and the herpetology collection, but I don't want to touch those things in any way whatsoever. So I admire what is going on there, and I appreciate that we have these um, creepy crawlies in jars for scientific purposes, but I am not interested in that slime of life. See, if I were CEO, I would every now and then just kind of wander into a guy and say, hey, I'm just going to go open some drawers and see what's in them because I've been in there before and I'm in, with someone else and I stand in the back and I say, can I open this drawer? And they said, yeah, you can open it. And I'm, I don't want to touch anything. I just want to look. And there's just weird stuff in there. There's like a, a sperm whale's tooth in one of the drawers. I'm like, did you know this is in here? You know, I think the treasures of our collection are just unimaginable, the depth of what we have there. And it's because... We're an infinite organization, right? The the Natural History Museum is 200 plus years old. The Historical Society is almost 200 plus years old at this point in time. The things that we have that represent Earth's history 450 million years ago to the Ice Age to, you know, the ornithology collections that have come from all over the globe in the last hundred years, you know, the, the 
art carved furniture. I mean, we can go on and on and on. We have this incredible treasure trove of things that um, are meaningful to this community because they are the stories of how people have lived their lives. They're the stories of how people have built their businesses. They are unique to the region and the geography and the geology of this place. So it's just fascinating to be able to kind of play with the curatorial team. And because these are stories, the collections are growing because we're still collecting stories and stories are still being written or still being told. So as old as the collections are, in a way, they're also getting younger. So there there are objects, there are toys in the history collections that I remember getting as a kid. And like, that shouldn't be in here right now. Why is why is there a PlayStation next to an old-timey You're typewriter? Grappling with your mortality. Well, it's it's more so... Hey, you I mean, you're help. about to be 40, right? So you're having you're you're coming up on your midlife crisis now. Yes, my knees tell me that every day. <laughs> um, it is a little mind blowing to see the Star Wars characters from my childhood in in the gallery as well. There's, but there's, that's an incredible story about you know the Kenner Toy Company in this community. There's a Knight Rider car <laughs> on display right now. I talk about this to everyone. It's so wild. Can you find um, that show streaming? Uh, you probably can, there? yeah. Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> are you are you waxing poetic about David Hasselhoff? Not David Hasselhoff. It's the guy, the guy who had the voice, um, the Kit's, Kit Kit's voice, and he was the actor on Saint Mr. Feeney. And was other he Mr. Feeney? Like it sounds like Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. All right, Cody, final question. What's, what's the one thing that you have to have, like when you when you are ready for me to step up to a microphone? Uh, what do you what do you bring to the table, and what are you anxious about when I open my mouth? Am I going to get the Elizabeth who's twenty minutes early, or the Elizabeth <laughs> that's ten minutes late? Often, the only anxiety I ever have is that I've not prepped you enough. Is that I'm going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to? Not well, not necessarily. I don't want you to get a question where I'm watching you struggle through it or dance through it because you're very good at tap dancing and, and bantering and kind of vamping. But I don't want you to get hit with a question that you thought you were walking into an interview or uh, talking points that were about A, but they're really about F. And it's a long way to go from A to F. But it reminds me of a Billy Cunningham interview I did once where I thought I was going to talk about an exhibition. The next thing he wanted to know was my consideration of the Brent Spence Bridge Project. That was 10 plus years ago, though. Having a CEO who has been in this role, who has been in this field, is very helpful because you know things like that are going to pop up. But I'm always concerned that I've left someone hanging to dry. So I don't want to leave you out to dry. I appreciate that. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day uh, and for helping us keep this plate spinning. My pleasure to be here and to talk with all of you. Speaking of all of you, thank you for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe, but more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 